back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, and joining us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason, how are you? We are going to jump right back in with Chad and Taylor Gilchrist. Um, it's such a pleasure and a delight to have you guys here. We want to finish hearing more about our story. So uh, we're, we're just completely rolling right into a new episode. So let's pick up where we left off. We were talking about working with French people that we didn't know and how we developed these relationships. You had brought up Francois and how he brought Emily and Tam into the tribe. Uh, I remember you telling me you have to talk to this guy. He's become my best friend. I just be aware he really wants to have a long conversation with you. And that could be an hour or two. Uh, which was truly fascinating and interesting because I'd never met anybody that worked that way before. He did do a video call with me and he really wanted to just feel us out and get to know who we were as a team, asking me things like, what was my favorite French song or French movie and American song and American movie, just asking me random questions and just talking with me about my view of the world and life. And turns out he also was a Christian. His faith was very important to him. And he just felt very connected to us very quickly and loved our heart for the project. And it mirrored his own desire to have um, a different kind of working experience. And we knew that he was very high level. Um, one of the things that he offered to bring to the team was this incredible way to record um, you know, dual dialogue stuff um, so that we could hear the translations um, not only live, but also when we were editing, you know, back home. Uh, and he offered to to do that. I mean, did we pay him? I think we did pay them something, but not their regular rate, right? Taylor, what did you negotiate? Yeah, I mean, and I don't remember like exact numbers, but it was a very, very significant, um, you know, discount that we were given from the the audio house um, that Francois had a, a relationship with. So, you know, Francois, along with providing us crew, also allowed us to kind of share in his relationship with with this audio house who did rent out the equipment that we needed for this live translation system um and so you know francois is just that kind of person who he wasn't going to come out and and do the job halfway you know he he knew what what needed to happen um and was going to make sure that that we had that you know and i think too as as a professional kind of in this industry if you are going to put your name on a project you want the the outcome or the result to you know be be as 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 good as it can be so we were really grateful that he was you know willing to again share those connections and help elevate it in in that sense yeah and i think you know that, sorry didn't mean to interrupt no that's totally fine i mean I mean, that's why you have experts like this, because my brain can't understand how a live translation system works with, you know, someone being interviewed in English, but responding in French and then translating that back for the, the interviewer in English so they know what the subject just said. I mean, it's, you know, very complicated. Yeah, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a, yeah. it's it's such a beautiful thing. Well, and I think um, what we're saying as we talk around this topic is that it really does go back to who you know and letting them know you. Because I think, you know, we did do a lot of digging around in the beginning for the equipment house. And it was, I, I know this company, they have a reputation. Let's try making some phone calls. And then it's who you connect with. And Taylor, what I love about you is that you are a very personable person. You are easy to talk to. You care about people that comes across um, as you are working your job as a producer. And I think that does draw people to open up to you and in doing that, you're making relationships and you're getting to know people. And I think your time spent talking to Francois, not everyone would do that. You, Taylor, that's who you are. You do that. 
And you made that relationship with Francois. You felt like he was right for our project. And you encouraged me to do the same. And in the end, you were right. You were 100% totally right. And you, you went on your gut with that. And you worked hard to nurture that relationship and to in, engender that love. Uh, and I think that's one of a huge strength that you carry as a producer. So if you are a producer and you're listening to this, I think that's a huge thing to emulate. And if you are looking for a producer, um, that quality that Taylor possesses, I think is, you know, cannot be underrated or overrated. Can't be overrated. Thank anyway. you. That's hard to, <laughs> that's my wife. It's hard to accept, <laughs> um, but, but. Thank you so much. And I also will say my husband possesses that quality too. And so do you, Christian. And Jason, we know you do too. I mean, that's we wouldn't we wouldn't be here if we didn't, you know, expect that from you, Christian. And I that agree. initial connection that you and Chad had made. So, you know. Let's talk about Chad for a minute. So let's, uh, I realized in the last um, episode, we totally just kind of glossed over um, who he was. So we haven't talked about uh, where he came from, what his background is, what he's worked on, what he does for a job, you know, is, is cinematography the only thing he does? So Chad, take us back. How did you get interested in filmmaking in the first place? Uh, man. Great question. Summary of it is um, I grew up with parents in different households. And so with my biological dad, we'd watch tons of movies all the time. And they were always, you know, like James Bond and Indiana Jones and, you know, all that kind of things. And I mean, tons, tons of movies and, and including stuff from, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s. So um, and onward. So um quite a film education there. And then with my mom, it was always black and white, Humphrey Bogart, Cary Grant, Hitchcock, you know, uh, a lot of black and white there. So um, between those two, I think just at an early age, just really caught me as a way to explore and learn different things. And so um, wanted to do that. Ended up going to film school, went to DePaul in Chicago, down in the loop. And um, yeah, from there I was, I was my favorite cinematographers were people that came from lighting backgrounds. Um, so, and, and that seemed to be the thing that I, I've, I felt and, you know, maybe still do and that it's, you know, a very difficult skill to, to learn and to master and to be able to control those moving parts. And, you know, those are big crews, you know, on a camera crew, there's maybe, four or five people and you know with lighting it can it can get exponentially larger so that was something that i wanted to learn um sooner so i did the lighting route and um i ended up becoming like a gaffer on some you know like indie back of amazon type movies and commercials and whatnot and um and an electrician a set lighting technician and then i moved over to um the union side uh yeah and then it kind of kind of went from there it just became you know it was a started as a actually i was a grip for a while and then um went over to electric and did lighting and yeah so uh you know i think that is really interesting i didn't i think until i started this whole thing i really didn't understand how important lighting is uh, you just, it's kind of one of those things that you take for granted. And I think early on filmmakers take sound for granted, uh, as well. And, and I just know that I cannot watch a film without good sound. And I certainly know if there wasn't good lighting, I wouldn't be able to watch it either, literally. So talk about, um, the importance and how lighting can make a difference. Um, well, you know, I, I, I like to, to kind of point out that people's most people would say that like roger deakins is you know one of the greatest cinematographers to to ever have worked and he's working right now and he shoots all of his movies with the same camera and lenses and what you know so um you think about that and it comes down to to lighting and production design and the, and the quickest way to create a tone or a mood is it's lighting and that's why you go to you know some people choose 
restaurant A over restaurant B or bar A over bar B and hotels and whatever. Like it's all about mood and setting tones. Um, so it's, it's extremely important. And if you combine that as well with, um, you know, composition, um, you can really tell, uh, stories in, in a single frame. So, uh, that's, that's kind of where I wanted to, to jump off and, and hopefully we brought some of that to this project. I know we, we were able to light the interviews a little bit more on this one. We did a little bit of shaping with some of our day exteriors. Um, we're a little bit limited, but, uh, you know, I've also been in this really unique position for the last 10 years. I've worked for like some of the greatest cinematographers, um, working. So I've gotten to, you know, firsthand really study what they're doing every day. You know, I was, I was on movies and TV shows, you know, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, five, six days a week for nine, 10 months straight for six years, five years. And then I still was around it day playing, uh, do still doing 40 hours a week, but not 80 or 90, um, on commercials and movies and things still. So, uh, I really got this great front row seat to watch the greats and hopefully learn a little bit from them and take some of that down. Cause sometimes they're able to, you're able to learn some things that are like, uh, the, what's the most efficient way to make something look better under a time crunch or a budget crunch or whatever. Um, so we tried to bring some of those, those little tricks down and dirty. Like if, if, if our budget is, is this, what can we do within that? That will give us the most, uh, movement what will what will allow us to to elevate that image over here and here and so some of those those decisions like the camera that was an easy one where it's like you know i own this i own this camera i don't really bring it out except for friends's passion projects and whatnot so we were able to bring the camera and mindy very graciously was you know willing to to hop on a different system and then we were able to that's one less thing we had to rent um one less cost on on our end to hopefully put it back into the movie somewhere else. Cause it's, it's a zero sum game. That's, that's the great lesson of film. Yeah. So I know I can, you know, everybody can go and read your IMDB, uh, you know, profile. And I would encourage people to do that just so you can learn a little bit more about Chad and Taylor and projects they've worked on, but can you uh, just fill us in on some of the projects that you learned the most on, or you're the most proud of, or um, yeah, share with us a little bit about what you've done. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, more recently, I'm trying to think of some things that are out now. The um, bear. I can, bear. I know that you worked on the bear. Yes. I worked the on bear. the bear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love the bear. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. We, that was a fun one. Um, I did the pilot on that one, um, wow. with, uh, Adam Newport Barra and, um, my good friend, Brandon Hoig. Um, so yeah, the bear, I did a, a David Fincher film in the winter of, it was last year. Um, that's not out yet. That'll be called The Killer, um, which is also called like Le, Le Tour. I don't know. I can't speak French. So that sounded good, babe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but there's there's a French title as well. Um, and then um, I just did Beverly Hills Cop 4 for a little bit there. Um, I did a, a movie called We Grown Now that's going to come out. I'm very excited for that. I don't know. Suits. American Fargo, American Crime Story. Yeah, a lot. You got a big. There's some (laughs) stuff on there. Yeah. So, talk to me when you were thinking about lighting for what we were doing and our tiny little budget. What was your lighting philosophy for this? Um, you know, really, I I wanted to pick fixtures. You know, to not to get too far into the weeds, but essentially, I wanted to pick. pick tools that were going to serve me in, in different situations and could get me out of potential trouble spots. Um, you know, so I'm, I was picking led fixtures that could do, um, full spectrum, you know, if, if they needed to be daylight or tungsten things that I could, you know, I, I like to have a, a harder, uh, light that I can modify down to make it softer. Um, versus being stuck with only a soft light and needing something hard or something punchy and not being able to have it. 
So we picked, um, I mean, honestly, we didn't have many heads. I think we only had maybe three or four. Um, one of them was just like a little, you know, one by panel that I brought with me, a little Astra. And then we had like a couple of other lights and they weren't like the most uh, new recent lights. And that was another strategy for me is, you know, sometimes you get asked to do a project and it's, and, you know, you think, okay, there's all the new fun flashy stuff that people want to rent and it looks cool to have behind the scenes photos of this new light if you're that DP or whatever. But um, we wanted to serve the story. So I can choose a light that's 10, 15 years old or whatever. And, it, you know, they can go to the back of the rental house and blow the dust off it. And I'm going to get it for a price that's significantly cheaper than the new thing. And um, then we're able to use that money in, in food or editing or, you know, whatever else. So that was a big part for us was was picking things that we thought was were going to be um uh, useful in, in other places and, um, and economical. Awesome. Well, it does look good. I've seen some of this footage. Um, people were not too far away from, um, from being able to show you guys stuff. You will eventually see what they, uh, have shot. Talk to me a little bit about, um, what you and Mindy decided about you know, how you wanted to shoot this, what each of your roles were going to be, um, and what your vision was for what you wanted this to look like. Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, coming in Christian, something Christian had talked about was wanting this to have a little more of a dramatic narrative feel, um, just, you know, to be able to kind of conceptualize something for another project, um, that we were looking to to do that, you know, trying to grab some funding for. So that was definitely a big element was how how are we able to bring a little bit of these these narrative elements in with also some of the uh, more traditional documentary, you know, kind of, you know, an, an interview that's off camera or whatever, right? So um, that was a big thing. And then, you know, with Mindy, honestly, like, sh- she was so gracious and easy to work with and something where I, I came in and I, you know, I was, I was like, I'll be your, your B camera operator. You know, I'm, I'm here to hang out. And, and she very graciously kind of let me take a a little bit of the lead there. And, um, and it was easy. I felt like we were always kind of on the same page and uh, Mindy ended up operating uh, a, a camera as well. And, um, and so that was very helpful to be able to to kind of approach a scene and say, hey, you know, I'm going to go wide, you go tight or vice versa and um, and figure out what what we need coverage wise to make that scene work. Because, you know, a lot of times, too, just situationally um, and maybe we can segue this back into to you, Christian and, and Taylor here. But, um, you know, we ran into some some interesting hurdles, which is filmmaking. That's the, that's the thing. You got to stay flexible, especially on, on projects that have uh, tighter constrictions. And um, yeah, so we. <laughs> let's talk about, I'm glad you kind of brought that up. Um, let's talk about some of the more notable challenges that we faced. And when we sort of talked about this um, podcast a little bit earlier, we talked about, um, wanting to share the things that popped up, because just like you said, Chad, problems happen in every single production. It's just, it's like a family. There are difficult things you encounter as a family. And the question is, how do you handle those difficult things? And we, I, it's always been my vision to be able to do production differently to take whatever comes at us and handle it in a way that is gives honor and dignity to everyone and where we can not tear each other down, but listen to each other and figure out how we can get this made in the most positive way possible. So Taylor, you were at the crux of a lot of things that um, you had to juggle. You were our fixer and our problem solver. So talk about some of the things that you remember that you were that were very challenging that you are proud of for for problem solving in a positive way. Sure. Um, well, I think you know one of the first things that comes to mind is knowing that we were going to be filming in Normandy um, for four days, 
with two days being interviews, two days being reenactments of, you know, some of these key scenes from the Battle of Carenton. Um, Christian, you had connected me with some locals who you had already developed relationships with from the girl who wore freedom. And, you know, these folks worked for the mayor um, or they were just, you know, locals with a lot of connections and a lot of close history in in the area. Um, And they were the ones who were helping us secure locations um, and secure our reenactors for the scenes that we were going to be filming. Um, And before arriving in France, we were kind of told, you know, everything, everything is good in terms of locations and the reenactors. We're we're gonna have everybody that we need for these scenes. Um, and I don't want to say that everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, but I think that everything that had been perceived as like being planned or in place maybe got flipped on its head a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, that's an understatement. And I, I will say, um, I'm going to put a fine point on this. Um, I was told that the locations and the reenactors were in hand and that we really didn't need to worry about it. And as it time got closer and closer, it was getting a little more nerve wracking and largely because you were the producer in charge And you wanted confirmation that everybody knew what they were going to do and had their call sheets, knew what time they were supposed to be there, that everybody had the, you know, equipment they were supposed to have. And we just were not able to get any confirmations of those things. And, you know, to explain what was going on, these people that were helping us were also in the middle of D-Day. So it is the biggest thing in their year. It's bigger than anything else in the calendar year. It's how they make their money by being tour guides or, um, you know, or whatnot. And so they are managing many different things. And typically um, during D-Day, the reason we chose to film during this particular time was because I was already going over there for the Girl Who Wore Freedom screenings and the reenactors were already all going to be there. And we knew we needed to do these five different reenact, or I don't know how many reenactments, I think it was five, five different reenactments that we had. Um, And so we wanted big groups of reenactors to help us out. And there was one person that did know all of these different groups of reenactors and had assured us that don't worry about it. It's all going to be there. And and in my experience, it has always been there. There wasn't really a breakdown. Everybody kind of did what they were supposed to do. And in this situation, it just wasn't buttoned up. And then we had the added problems of the weather. So talk about uh, how we navigated this problem of not having locations really locked or having any reenactors that we were supposed to work with. Yeah. Chad, did you want to? Yeah. Well, you know, on, yeah. on, on my end and, and we can maybe, you know, go to the specific issues here, but, you know, on, on my end, I think, you know, uh, early on during one of our, our kind of prep days, idle days, um, Taylor, myself, Mindy, and, um, our awesome writer, uh, Zach Cal- Callahan, <laughs> um, we all did a little location scout. And, you know, so we scouted these locations and we had, you know, obviously we had a writer with us. So we, we knew what, what battles were happening and how they were going on and whatnot. And so we were kind of, you know, we were doing some previs and and planning out some shots and where's the sun going to be when and, you know, yada, yada. And then basically on the day, it's like all these locations are either gone or like we scouted a river and we went to this river and the water is like 10 feet lower and three days later, you know, <laughs> like just yeah. crazy stuff. There was no river when, when we went back. <laughs> it was just a mud pit. A key part of the scene because yeah. the reenactment is essentially, you know, this, this group of soldiers crossing this, this body of water. So without yeah. a body of water, you don't really have the scene. Right. <laughs> so, and we have limited time with, with the soldiers and yeah. the light and everything. So I think there's also, which is just, and we, we made all of our days and I think that's, that's, um, you know, largely due to the flexibility of a really great 
crew that was always in problem solving mode. Everyone was contributing. There wasn't anyone that kind of took the the mentality that you might on a on a larger production of like, okay, this is not my lane, so I'm gonna you know walk away entirely and not care um, until it gets solved. Everyone was trying trying their best to help, and um, I know on on my end it felt good maybe to do some some of those years of TV because all of a sudden you're like, okay. I'm seeing the blocking for the first time right now, and we're going to have to figure out what the coverage is and how to shoot it for an edit. And we sun is setting and we can do this like three times. Uh, so how can we make that happen? And, and Mindy too, like, Oh my gosh, when we got to the river, uh, Mindy was, and Tam being, I'll, I'll let you talk that, that story, yeah, but it's I mean, just it's, lifesavers. Lifesavers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really just some, Honestly, I mean, like the problems that came up just became great adventures. And again, what Chad said about the crew that we were working with, everyone just was so fully in. It's like, here we are. We're here. We drove four hours from Charles de Gaulle to come up here to Normandy. We rented this equipment and we're going to do it. We're going to do it by any means necessary. And everybody shared that perspective. And so you know, our first day of shooting was an interview day. Um, and again, you know, I had been told <laughs> that. I'm just our- now remembering how that day went. <laughs> yeah. For day one, day one of production, maybe two hours in, yeah. three hours in, I look out the window and there's there's Taylor just like, just a look of, of total dread i don't know yeah, i don't really <laughs> because know we were either. supposed to have people interviewing that didn't come to the interview and and ultimately we did have to have a a talk mm-hmm. um with the person that you know was probably overworked and didn't understand um what was being expected um and to his credit worked through that with us and we ended up getting things done uh, but it i I give that person a lot of credit for being able to hang in there with us to come yeah. and talk to us. And, and someone and that isn't around. a film fixer either. Right. So you right. Know, they're doing something that is totally out of their lane to the best of their ability. Yeah. And so there was and not getting paid for it. Yeah. And, yep. and definitely wanting to help. So, you know, in the end, that was one of my proudest moments that we did have this challenge with, with someone that we felt um, didn't understand the role and yet we were able to sit down and work through it and get the job done um, without any animosity or, um, you know, we got what we needed to get. And, yeah. and that some miracle, I mean, basically we had, what did we have? Eight, 10? Yeah. That ended, it was eight, maybe that stayed right. with us the entire time when we were supposed to have like, I don't know, 50, like- 60. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we're, we're, it's our first interview day, we're filming, the whole crew is, you know, inside the interview location, and I'm communicating um, with our contact who's supposed to be securing all of our reenactors. And he, he basically is like, where are you? I need to come talk to you in person. So he shows up to set and I, you know, kind of excuse myself to go talk to him. And basically he shares the news that because of the weather um, that had happened, you know, there was like a huge storm. Um, there was supposed to be, you know, par- parachute drops, like these amazing reenactments that that had all gotten canceled, specific D-Day events that had all gotten canceled. So basically a lot of reenactors had just sort of packed up camp and left left and so basically he was like you know there's there's like no one here and i was like no one there's no one like just anybody and again really to his credit he used his connections and used his his relationships and got us this group of um you know french klondikes and they came um, and worked with us for all of our reenactment scenes the next two days. And again, this wasn't ideal because the different scenes were supposed to be with different soldier groups. So, yeah, so let me talk about that for just yeah. one. 
So when we talk about different soldier groups, so in the Battle of Carentan, you had like 301st units that helped liberate Carentan. And then you had the Fallschirmjäger German paratroopers that they were fighting against. And so really, we had these group of German reenactors and then 101st reenactors, and they were all supposed to fight each other and be in these scenes together. And um, what we ended up with was about eight reenactors that reenacted both groups of people and we had to film them separately and somehow figured out challenge yeah i mean it was just a, a logistical nightmare particularly when they decide to kind of do their own thing um in terms of reenacting on the side <laughs> oh gosh yeah. Uh, and, and this was another like moment that you have no idea um, how to handle. But basically, um, we were filming a scene with just a few of the reenactors. And so the majority of them were off doing something else. And we had brought on this amazing photographer. Remember Marcio? Oh, oh my gosh. Marcio was still in amazing. contact with them. He's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. we love Marcio. He's great uh, cinematographer and um, photographer, and he loves filming reenactments. And we were told that if we brought him on, reenactors would do anything for his photos. And that was really going to be the reenactors payment. So he was there and he was shooting pictures for these guys. So they decided to dress up as German SS to have their pictures taken as German SS. I did not know this, by the way. I was with Chad and Mindy, who were both filming a scene of the 327th with, you know, Tech Sergeant Don Rich, who's going to take his bazooka and take Carenton. And then I hear, you have to come. There's a problem. And I am having to go back down the road to see Taylor, who is managing a situation by giving cookies to the gendarme. And so I was like, what is happening here? So Taylor, what was happening? Yes. So while Christian was filming, um, you know, the same individual who was our contact with the reenactors had pulled me aside and he said, the gendarme are coming which essentially, you know, for those listening, basically equivalent of like police, law enforcement. Police. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. It's because we don't have permission to film here, even though you told us that we had the permission to film here and that everything was okay with the mayor's office. That's what I thought we were going to be, you know, running into and, and dealing with. Um, and then you know, we walk over to the group of of soldiers and, you know, gendarme are there talking to them. And then I find out that the issue is it it's illegal to be in a German SS uniform in public in France. And I imagine maybe other countries as well. The whole EU? Yeah. You know, this is something as it's a, a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's it was, a big deal. Yeah, it was it was bad. It was bad, to say the least. And, um, you know, our contact is basically like he's he's trying to get in contact with the mayor, you know, to kind of. And meanwhile, let me just say, take a pause. Meanwhile, now that you're working this out and I'm letting you work this out, I get a phone call and I'm in a van um, talking with. a representative of the mayor's office who says to me, this is a major mess. This is a major mess. What is happening out there? This cannot happen. You have to send an email to all to the gendarme and all of these other people to, to explain, because this is going to be bad for our film project. It's going to be bad for the town. And it was just this heightened, heightened situation because these were gendarme that A, didn't know we were filming there. And B, and they, even though they were told, I guess, and then B, this was a big offense. Now, the so I'm sitting here going, uh, whatever we need to do, we'll do. And meanwhile, I'm also getting a call from my father and there were major meltdowns with my dad that I was having to solve, solve at the same time. So I'm dealing with on the upper level with, you know, one of the Carenton official people and my father and you're out handling the gendarme and the reenactors trying to figure out how we move past this situation. 
Well, the and, and strategy at the time too, if you remember, was keep shooting until we get kicked out because yeah. we're gonna get kicked out. So yeah. don't <laughs> just roll on it, all of it. Exactly. You know, like yeah, until I, we are told right. we have to. I look, yes, yeah, I look over and I'm like, oh, Taylor's gonna buy us another fifteen, <laughs> and by the end of. 10 I look over and she's hand feeding cookies to the p- French police. <laughs> well, and so that so really what ended up happening, you know, is I think through explaining that, you know, we were not aware as sort of this production that one, you know, this this was an issue first off just because, you know, kind of playing our own ignorance of being Americans, Americans or what have you. And then also because these reenactors, some of them were a, a part of the gendarme. So they knew they, better. They, were, <laughs> they knew exactly Doesn't what they were doing. Case. And so, they, you, but, but I think you were able to say, we are over here filming. We're yeah. filming with these reenactors. This guy is off doing his own thing on a bridge yes. on his own right we were completely unrelated authorizing that yeah, yeah totally unrelated exactly because we were um, never I- going to be filming with someone in in this specific uniform that was never part of our plan our production so you know then um the reenactor who had kind of gotten us in this in this situation you know he i mean he felt horrible the other thing too is they had to um the gendarme had to search all of their vehicles and look through all of their their weapons which they have you know these these weapons as as reenactors that are yeah if you're just the time period if you're just driving down the side of the road to paint this image you're you're driving down normandy france nice clear day you look to your side and you see a little white woman feeding cookies to French police and a bunch of soldiers dressed in SS pulling out like guns, like a, like a, like a Russian arms deal, you know, out of the back of this car, there's bazookas and machine guns and grenades. And like this was also mind you right before we went to the location where we found the river dried up. So this all happened in the same big day in the same day. day. Yeah. And we also, you know, um, I remember the gendarme had, they were on the phone with someone who basically was kind of, it seemed like they were having a conversation with someone who was sort of giving them orders of, of what to do or handle the situation or how to remedy. Um, and they handed me the phone to speak with this person as well. And when I got on the phone, it was someone that we had been working with in the production. Um, and Christian, I don't know if you want me to drop name here. Um but yeah, it was Denis Vandenbrink, who was a historian that had been directing some of our reenactment scenes prior, knew who all of these guys were, knew that they had totally messed up. Um, and he was the one who, you know, then got on the phone with Christian and said, we're going to have to write this email, this major apology to kind of soften soften the situation and make sure all of our relationships are still intact. So it was definitely a... Yeah, it was a highlight. I'll yeah. say honestly, ultimately, because it was <laughs> big day. And then yeah, 30, 30 minutes later, forty minutes later, we're at a location that's like there's no water. Yeah, and then maybe forty minutes after that, an hour. We're at I'm, a new. We're yeah. at a new river. Mm-hmm. I am in waders in water up to my chest, holding my camera. As is Mindy. Yeah, and Mindy is holding on to me and we're sinking slowly into mud that is like almost up to my knees. Yeah. And every time you try to walk, you're going to fall. I mean, and these reenactors, though, they were awesome. They, they, you know, they we were doing this big scene. They get in the water. They they chase, you know, they kind of chase through this water. It's it's and also the the mud is this river is next to um, it's next to like kind of like a dairy farm. Cow pasture, a cow pasture, yeah. So, um, how did it smell? Not like mud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're in mud uh, up to our chest, you know, and uh, (laughs) 
I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, it was amazing because again, it just was, a, here was another example of everybody just going fully in and quite literally fully in submerged in cold French water. Um, and, you know, these, I mean, really by this time too, this was the last. That was our martini shot, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. this was our last yeah. scene that we yeah. filmed. And so by this time, again, we'd been working with these same like eight reenactors. <laughs> we had experienced problems with the law. Like we were really, you know, again, for lack of a better term, a family at this point. And also yeah. I remember an amazing visual of filming this scene as well is Emily with the boom pole, just like she's kind of in the middle of this swamp area, just, and she's so small. She's so petite. She's the most she's petite like five foot. boom operator ever. So it's just, gosh, she's so great. Yeah, she's got so, a boom pole that's, you know, 20 feet long over the, over the river. Yeah. Like. Is that Francois believed in her? Yeah. You know? He believed in her, wanted to give her an opportunity, knew she could do this. Yeah. She was willing to take that opportunity. She wasn't expecting to get paid at all. She went out there, worked her tail off. Yeah. Um, we couldn't let her get away without paying her something. She just did such an incredible job. And I think you're right, Taylor. I think it goes to, to the heart of the project. And like everybody here really did share a passion for doing something really well. And working together, having the same mindset of how to work together as a team. Yeah. And I remember that same evening, you know, that shot of Emily, the one that sticks in my mind is all of the reenactors did not want to get out of the river. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they wanted to go again. And we're like, guys, they wanted to swim. Gone. They wanted to go, you know, I mean, they were just having such an amazing time. Um, and after all of that, that had happened, it still was a beautiful way I think to wrap our, um, you know, wrap our shoot and, you know, yes, there, I mean, we didn't even touch on the fact like, uh, we had booked a lodging and oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really like seriously, like the social political kind of things that you run into when filming internationally. Um, and when you're balling on a budget. Yeah. You know, it's, it's. Yeah. Talk about the lodging experience. <laughs> so. Right. We all as a crew were staying in this um a manoir is what it's called. And it's basically castle. Like a, a <laughs> castle kind of farmhouse property. Um and the owners of the property they lived in kind of on the separate side of the house. Um and it's just, I mean, it's a really cool, like old French property, probably like built in the, I don't know. 1800s yeah, i mean definitely. it's it's, no, it's earlier than that like seriously things Six. over there are like over a thousand years old yeah i don't even know yeah, and, and it's large it is and it's you know there are multiple buildings on the property like there are there are, there are ducks yes, walking around animals, it's freely it, roaming i mean it was so it's very provincial it's very provincial um and our hosts we were told before we even got there that they were anti-american really, yeah they weren't huge fans of americans and they were kind of showing showing that um you know in some of the correspondences we had before arriving just kind of some like inflexibility with changing dates or guests that we were going to be bringing on our end um and, and i i do want to quickly interject and just say that this I didn't find this this um, attitude to be the case with anyone else that I met in Normandy the entire time. Everybody else was very pro-American, very, very like they wanted to hear your stories. They wanted to hear how, you know, what family member you're related to that, that fought in World War II. There is a lot of love for Americans. And I think most people on this podcast, I'm sure know that because they've seen the group, the girl who wore freedom, which is available to rent and purchase now at online anywhere. So make sure you pick that up. Great. As well as the girl you can go to our website and that money goes straight to us. Absolutely. Buy it from the website. Great stocking stuffer. Sorry. Continue Taylor. Yeah. So, you know, we knew that we weren't totally 
coming into a lodging that was like really excited to have us. Um, so fast forward, um, Christian's son, Jonah, was with us, and he also had some of his his friends who were there who are jumping. I'm, yeah, they were jumping. They were with the army. And let me just, before we go on, even before the whole Jonah thing happened. Yeah. The wife was really nice to us, yes. but there was a husband that basically did not want to talk to us at all. And he would sit in the middle of the room watching television and was very angry anytime you tied, tried to talk to him. So it was very confusing. Um, and we had a lot of people in this house and we had people coming and going at different times. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lot to manage. And I think was difficult for them, especially for him. And at one of these times, Jonah came, you know, he was one of the later arrivals. And then his friends who were guys who were actually jumping needed a place to stay, apparently. Exactly. And we had the space at the time because we were waiting for certain crew members to arrive. We hadn't started production yet, so we had open beds. And, you know, again, here are these you know, just sweet. I mean, Jonah's friends were, were, they're so kind. They're, they were so wonderful. Kind. Um, and so they only stayed for one night and I had said to Jonah, I said, okay, you know, if they stay, you just need to ask our hosts for a change of sheet, change of sheets. So you can turn over the beds before our, our crew comes. Um, and I said, Jonah, use Google translate. I trust you. I know that you can communicate with them in French. We're literally just asking for a change of sheets. So Jonah's like, okay, I got it. I got it. Um, Jonah thinks he has it. Then he comes back outside and he's like, Taylor, I don't think he's understanding what I'm saying. Can you come and try to translate? And I, I do speak French. I by no means will claim that I'm like, you know. She speaks French. She speaks French. I can, I can get a point across, I think. I can get a point across. And so then I go in to try to figure out what's, what's going on. And basically the husband is, is a, is, is very upset by this request for a change of sheets on, I think, literally two beds, maybe. Um, and, you know, it turns into this like, oh, you Americans, like you're always, you know, making things difficult and this is not, you know, what you had signed up for in your reservation and, you know, you're being so, so disrespectful. I can't believe it. And like, mind you also, this was actually, this conversation, whole interaction was happening on D-Day. This was like the anniversary. June 6th. Oh, wow. And we're having this conversation. <laughs> he is, you know, directing these and expletives to an to American, American service wearing members. uniform yes. in, in uniform. uniform. Yes. Jonah was in uniform during this whole. Enjoy your freedom. You're yeah. welcome. We just want two sheets. Two <laughs> sheets. Yeah. And I, you but know, the worst part for me was I heard him screaming his head off and slamming the door. And that at, was at you. It was yeah. at my wife. And, and, and you know what, honestly, we can all be thankful that I don't know French. <laughs> Because we probably would have got kicked out. Yeah, it basically had ended, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think he did agree to, like, giving us new sets of sheets and then, but slammed the door in my face. Um, But, you know, shout out to Francois, who's, you know, a a true um, gentleman mm -hmm. and and a statesman. He wasn't wasn't there at the time. He wasn't there. That was what was interesting. He wasn't there at the day. Francois wasn't there. um, And neither was Emily or Tam, who both spoke French. Mm -hmm. And Denis Vandenbrink wasn't there. He was staying there as well. The next day they show up and all of a sudden there's a huge change. Yep. Right? Because now we have our, you know, now our French allies are on the scene and and well Francois, the whole attitude changes. And Francois did he, he called them the, out as well. You know, he he had a separate conversation yeah, with the owner. And yeah. he did he did say, like, these these are men in uniform here to celebrate liberating our country and you're being 
completely rude to them, totally called them out. And in a very, honestly, I mean, it seemed like a nice way, whatever he said, however he said it, he said it with a smile and the, and the gentleman was receptive. And from then, there on out, it's like, oh, Jonah, you're having a hard time with your car? We'll help you out. Yeah. You know, like they, they're out in, in hands and knees trying to, you know, lift Jonah's car who is stuck in the mud or whatever. Yeah. So like very I mean, interesting experience. Yeah, uh, a total turn of events. Total 180. Also, I think he might have gotten a little um, heat from from his wife. <laughs> and that was amusing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, just fascinating experiences culturally too to to have. Yeah, we have I mean, we have so many stories, and it was it was such a blast. We went, you know, we went to to beyond the beach, you know, on D Day. You know, was was I, I really think you know really life changing, and and I think uh, that is at the end of all of this, we have these you know fun stories, and you know we could talk about the ups and downs of production but um truly it's, it's a life-changing trip you know to be able to go and do this and do this while while veterans are still alive and then to be with um to be at brightcore manor and to be there with dick winter's nephew who's you know also served in vietnam and and you know all these just really crazy things to hear these stories of of uh these brave individuals is really what it's all about and why why we did all this, why we do all this work. And um, so I want a special thanks to you, Christian, for inviting us and for letting us come and help tell tell this story uh, with you. And Jason, uh, for you as well, for being faithful to this podcast. And, you know, I'm sure it's, it's not getting live feedback, you know, all the time is like, oh man, the dread, why do I do this or whatever, you know, who knows on, on, you know, whatever early morning or late night, you know, you put in the extra work, but, um, we don't do this for us. You know, we do this to share this, this important piece of history, um, to the future. And I think we see that more and more that it's, it's important that these stories are told. And, um, and so make sure that you go watch the girl who wore freedom. So that you can hear <laughs> I love you, Chad, you're hired forever. Love you. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think, um, and I think you're wrapping it up so nicely. Um, one of the things that just gave me such soul satisfaction was the night that we wrapped, we all stayed up probably till one or two in the morning, just debriefing. And everybody went around the table with a bottle of Calvados and talked about, um, about, about each other, about each other and what each person had done and brought to the table. And, you know, just how we saw the amazing in the others we were working with. And Rick Arbazani, who has become such a dear friend, Who's you know kind of what, what I, I you call Papa Rick? <laughs> yes, Papa Rick. Um, you know he's just he's been on so many different sets working you know so many different films, and he him saying that this was the best crew experience he had ever had. Um, I will hold on to forever because for all of the problems that we experienced, it did not divide us as a team, and everybody I think shown. Um, you know, during that time, one of the things that I loved is at some point, Chad came up to me and said, Hey, Christian, this is putting a lot of pressure on Taylor. And I know it's not intentional, but it's really get, you know, it's really stressful on her. And I was so thankful for that. I was so thankful for that because you can't fix a problem as a director or producer, unless it's brought to you, you know, in some sort of way. And typically on other production sets that wouldn't have been done. It would have just been this woman's a biatch and we're done with her. We're never working on this film thing again. Right. But I think everybody was committed there to really communicating well and working together well. And, you know, that to me is the most rewarding part so far of this production, um, getting to know you guys and working with you the way you work with the rest of the team. Um, you have my undying gratitude and I can't wait to, to work with you more. So, um, and as far as Jason goes, I've known Jason since he was about 16 years old 
And uh, we've been through a lot together uh, over the course of time. And, you know, you have always been here for me and believed in me, um, Jason. And I'm just so grateful for your friendship and, you know, your commitment of time to, to what I'm doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, um, it's good to, I mean, Christian and I, we've always just had each other's back in everything we've always been through. And it's, it's cool to, I'm just glad that there, every time that she adds someone new to the team and it's good people, like both of you two, <laughs> it's just like good people who clearly have her back, believe in her, believe in the project, believe in what she's doing. I'm just over the moon every time. So yeah. I'm really I'm glad they could her. finally meet you guys. And yeah, uh, <laughs> I can't yeah. believe it took this long. I've been hearing about you, you two for. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're busy people. They yeah, work. And oh, fair. yeah, by the way, <laughs> they're going to be quite busier right around March. So why don't you talk to us about what's coming next? <laughs> well, we have a couple of commercials. <laughs> <laughs> a baby. A baby boy. <laughs> a baby boy. Taylor oh, wow. 2.0. <laughs> uh it's so exciting Aww. yeah um shortly after they wrapped they spent a night in paris or a day in paris flew home and i think got married like the following weekend wasn't that yeah after? it was like 12 <laughs> days later and christian christian and her husband came to our wedding which was so Aww. so amazing yeah, it was well, I, it really was the best wedding i've ever been to i think <laughs> uh, including all of mine i mean i think so you were good. the first one that really <laughs> Uh, learn outside of our immediate family that we're having a baby too. Oh yeah, that's true. You yeah. were one of the first people we told. Yeah, wow. yeah. super fun. There you go. All it takes. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you, thank you, that's awesome. and thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know what we forgot to do? Docu it's time for docu view deja vu. I wasn't gonna let you forget. <laughs> all right chad i want you to go first this time okay i will start it off um with the dissident i'm going to hold up the image um if you're listening on spotify or you know if you're audio only you're not going to see this but if you're um, watching on youtube uh dissident that's the name of the film right there it's um i'll read you the synopsis when washington post journalist jamal Khashoggi. Disappears and symbol his fiance and uh, dissidents around the world piece together clues to murder and expose a global cover up. So um, really awesome, and I think important documentary. Definitely one that's you know uh, it's always fascinating to me when people put themselves in a lot of like you know dangerous uh, position to to advance humanity, and you know I, maybe that's a theme here with um, with World War II as well here, um, but. Uh, fascinating amazing storytelling and um technically brilliant and and one of those those stories that just keeps unfolding and all of a sudden you're caught up in it so highly recommend it and that is available on plex i don't know what plex is but it's on plex and tubi and prime and you could probably buy it wherever else you buy uh movies <laughs> awesome the, all right uh, last night uh, yes what'd you say jason i was gonna say the thing that's shocking to me is i looked this movie up and the fourth person listed in the cast is jeff bezos <laughs> jeffrey bezos that's interesting yeah, i'm kind of concerned because <laughs> yeah, really. like massive cover-up yes he's yeah. kind of looped and it's great yeah Ooh, okay watch yeah. to find out even more intrigued <laughs> Okay, so uh, mine uh, is a, a documentary that Chad and I actually watched. And Taylor started with us watching last night until she fell asleep, like, I don't know, five minutes. <laughs> it's only because it wasn't before 2 p.m. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, this was really an amazing documentary. I learned a lot. It's Louis Armstrong's Black and Blue, uh, a fitting tribute to a titan of American music. Louis Armstrong's Black and Blue honors its subject by letting him tell his story in his own words. Um, this has a hundred percent tomato meter, 90% audience score. It can be watched on Apple TV. Um, incidentally, it is produced, um, also by Sarah Bernstein from Imagine Entertainment. Um, and this movie was, um, really, really fascinating to me because he had recorded on reel to reel tape audio tapes all throughout his career. Um, just stories, his own history 
um, meetings with other people. And so the majority of this film is in his own words, but of course it's only audio. So they had to figure out what to do to tell the story visually. Uh, and I'm not going to ruin it, but I thought it was brilliant. Um, so I definitely think it's worth watching, particularly if you like Louis Armstrong, it gives you a lot of a background history. But as I found out on Wikipedia, probably only a quarter of his life history. So if you're uh, if you're really interested, you'll need to do a little bit more research to find out some of the more interesting things about Louis Armstrong. So that's my recommendation today. Well, all right. I think we're we're about wrapped up here. I I, I hope that we have you two back on when I'm a little bit more awake because I would <laughs> love to to talk to both of you a little bit more about what what you do. Um, and yeah, I, I think we should definitely have these two back on, don't you think, Christian? I absolutely think so. And hopefully, if we can just get them to maybe during December in the downtime, we can uh, we can get them back on for because yeah, there's still we're like so much more we haven't talked about. It would be an honor. It, it would. would be. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you both for being here and uh, thank everyone for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.